But I think the phase we're in right now is obviously, I guess, a quiet period where you can really build a lot of interesting solutions and build real products that can gain traction when, when people start to gain interest again in crypto. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagme Ventures. On today's episode, we have Darshan Vidya, co-founder and CEO at Cordora. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagme Ventures podcast where we do snapshots with interesting founders from across Web3. Check out wagmeventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Darshan Akradora. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Darshan Vedia, co-founder and CEO at Cordora. Darshan, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time. I'm really excited to chat. So here at the start, maybe we could just talk about, you know, what brought you to Web3 to start? Maybe just kind of your story professionally leading up to starting Cordora. Yeah, of course. So much like a lot of people in crypto came from the traditional financial markets, was an options trader in, the, in my previous life and was doing that for about 10 or 11 years and then came across Darabit, which was an options, early options exchange in crypto and became one of their first market makers, was running a small fund and yeah, essentially came to crypto more opportunistically as like an interesting market, but then sort of realized its value through a pain point that we had. So we were trying to scale our fund and that essentially involved accessing credit and trying to more effectively hedge across multiple venues and found it really difficult to scale our operation without access to more credit and ability to hedge. So happened to be sitting next to a project that was working on zero knowledge proofs and a variety of different privacy preserving computations. And for me, that's when I think the penny dropped about the ability of privacy preserving technology to disintermediate credit. And by that, I mean, how could I prove our credit worthiness as this small fund to someone, but without having to show them the sensitive information that was on our balance sheet and essentially our position. And so, yeah, that, that's when this went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out how to use this technology to, to validate credit worthiness. Got it. Super interesting. Okay. So in your own words, what is Credora? What are you guys building there kind of in its, in its fullness or totality? Yes. Yeah, so Credora is a credit intelligence platform, basically. And what we're trying to do is make it easier to evaluate someone's credit worthiness, usually an institution you work with medium and large businesses. And the basic concept is just the fact that private credit today relies a lot on unverified snapshots of data. And that is usually financial statements, balance sheets, et cetera, where you have usually internally prepared, but you can get them audited, but that usually takes a long time. And by that point, they're quite stale snapshots about someone's credit worthiness. And so what we realized is that there is a lot of this data available to validate someone's credit worthiness that is real time. And the main reason you know, large companies don't share their bank account in real time with lenders is there is sensitive information on there. And it's just not worth it for them to reveal that to anyone just to be able to borrow. So how can you unlock a lot of this data without breaching on the privacy of a business who you know, have competitors and have sensitive information on that real-time data? So what we've built is privacy-preserving technology that can compute on that real-time data 
but without having to ever see the underlying data. And so what that leads to is a platform that can collect all of those snapshots in time that traditionally private credit markets use, but then organize all of that and help validate it with the real time data. So you can then validate the snapshot in time data, but then you can have a really good proxy for where that snapshot in time is heading for the next reporting period. So that's really what Credora does is it makes it easy for lenders to use all of this data to do underwriting. And then we have a credit team that also uses this data to produce credit scores based on publicly available credit methodologies. Love it. Super interesting. So, you know, I want to jump into a couple different elements of what you said, but I think maybe just a preliminary question would be, I got a chance to read this article you produced called Data-Driven Lending is Better, where you discuss relationship-driven lending and how some lenders don't view real-time data as actually very useful. So can you kind of expand on this concept of relationship-driven lending and maybe go a little bit more into kind of what you've already started to share about why companies are hesitant to embrace real-time data? Yeah, so I think what I touched on really before was why borrowers are hesitant to share that information. It's just because it's too sensitive for their to, for them to reveal to anyone in the in you know in the chance that someone can use that information against them whether it's their strategy whether it's their clients whether it's you know knowing their weaknesses all of those things are obviously concerns of any business that is competitive but what we found i guess challenging was that in crypto a lot of the lending as you saw that was happening was based on trust and relationships and you know, not backed up by a lot of data. And so what it meant was that people had over-concentrated exposure to particular counterparties, that there wasn't a lot of data backing up why they should be doing that sort of lending. And and then I think the other problem is it, crypto is a nascent credit sector. And so because a lot of this lending is happening based on relationships, I think lenders struggle to really make use of the data that we could give them. But maybe to present the other side, really what they're working with without real-time data is a PDF or a snapshot in time document, usually prepared by the borrower themselves that says, okay, I have this much assets and this much liabilities. And the challenge we faced was that we would then ask a borrower to prove it. And the borrower would come back and in many, many cases, we were able to get a very complete picture of the borrower. But then there were other borrowers where you couldn't capture everything or they wouldn't share everything. And in those instances, lenders would say, well, this doesn't cover 100%. And it's quite, I guess, confusing if you're a data-driven person to get that kind of response because it's, well, 100% of what? What is it? 100% of what it says right. on this PDF, right? Like, how do you know that the PDF is correct? It was just something that guy typed up in Excel. So what is it 100% of? But, you know, let's say the PDF was accurate. I think that what people were kind of initially missing in when they are in relationship-driven loans is that, yes, you can validate 100% of those assets on the balance sheet. Great. You can then have a very complete picture of someone but if you just have the PDF and no real-time data, would 50% be better than zero? Like if you could track 50% of their assets, could you do something with that information? Could you do something with 60? Could you do something with 40? And I found that because of perhaps the kind of industry crypto is, 
it was kind of an all or nothing thing for a lot of lenders to start with, where they didn't really know how to use incomplete data, or perhaps were unaware that they were already working with incomplete data. And so it just took a lot of education, perhaps simplification of the data, but obviously in many cases we were able to win that market over. But I do think that is part of the challenge. It's like in in an effort for completeness, a lot of people picked zero. And I find that, I guess, difficult or any data driven person or data analyst would find it difficult to accept that more data could possibly be worse to make some sort of estimation. And then I think it's also partly down to the fact that when you're in a credit, nascent credit sector, it's this, I guess, expectation that you must know everything. Whereas when you're, if you look at most credit markets, it's all about using lots and lots of different types of data to try and build a complete picture of a particular borrower. But there is no one data source that can tell anyone about the credit worthiness of even you or I, and, you know, we're probably much simpler than a business. So really what I guess the way I would say is that most people are operating with two out of 10 data. And then when given another four out of 10, they were asking why it wasn't 10 out of 10. And it was, well, sure, but you should probably work with the six out of 10 that we're giving you. Um, and that, that's, I think what that article was trying to addressing is that it should be better to use the additional data. Now, I think where we learned our lessons was like what I said, is just trying to make that data more consumable, make it easier for people to compare it to the data that they're already looking at. And I think that the methodologies that we built help with that, but then visualizing the data and making it easy to chart versus the data that they're already looking at is another way that we've kind of tried to make it easier to understand why this is value add. Love it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So, you know, despite the tumultuous market, Cordora has seen some really impressive adoption, right? Where, you know, at least a billion in loans facilitated and you've onboarded at least 80 borrowers, at least 25 lenders. So I'm curious, you know, what has been the hardest part of gaining adoption thus far? Specifically, you know, is it more on the borrowers or lenders side? And then also, you know, depending on which of those you would pick, I'm curious why you think that is. Yeah, so I think the broader macro climate of lending obviously make some of that growth challenging. Like we did all of that through quite a volatile year with lending with 3AC, with Alameda, with various other blowups. And I think what it did was kind of validate why you need data, why you can't just have like a black box lending model where you just keep going further and further out the risk curve without actually validating whether that borrower is credit worthy. And so in a way, while it was a volatile and difficult market for lending, it did validate our processes. And in that billion dollars of loans facilitated, we didn't have any defaults and, and found that more and more so lenders would come to us and use us or certainly credit applications as well would come to us and use us to get a better picture of a borrower. And then in terms of like which ones are harder to onboard, I think some of it is market dependent, where borrowers tend to be in climates where it's difficult to get hold of capital. Like now, it, borrowers are more willing to share data. And then in markets where lenders have difficulty deploying, they're more keen to use our platform to to get a better sense of you know what the risk is for every borrower. So I think over the last six months, what's happened is both 
have seen some value. So borrowers were able to borrow more on average last year in the region of two to three times more than before they were using us. And so we found that it's easier now to get buy-in that borrowers who share more data and more transparent, get more access to capital. The other thing is we've also diversified to include lots of different types of borrowers. So we used to focus predominantly on trading firms, but now we you know, work with fintechs, we work with certain secured lending deals, we work with insurance firms. So it just means that we are less susceptible to cycles because we know that markets do have different cycles for different industries. And so they have different borrowing appetites throughout those. So that's one. And then on the lender side, I think, well, I guess more on the borrower side still, like I think getting them comfortable with what the technology is doing with their data. So getting them to understand the cryptographic proofs that we produce that validate that, hey, all of this data is computed privately and that we don't get to access it. So that education, I think, was part of also getting borrowers more comfortable. And I think that's getting easier and easier as our proofs get more robust and easier to understand. And then on the lender side, I think it's really just down to performance of loans. So getting them to see how they can diversify their their assets in a way where they can actually see the risk move in real time and see the performance of the loans on our platform. I think that gives them more confidence that transparent borrowers are better and that's where we've seen them come to our platform more more frequently so yeah i'd say like the challenge at the moment is probably on the lender side because of a general macro attitude towards lending but again part of the way to solve that for us is diversify the borrower set so that's how we've seen i guess lenders continue to use our platform is offering them lots of different types of yield opportunities when a particular avenue doesn't seem like as appealing anymore. Love it. Yeah. You know, you commented on some of these challenges. I'm curious, almost the flip side of the coin around, you know, even despite kind of the macro environment, what are the biggest opportunities for Cordora in the near future that have got really got you kind of like the most excited? Where at the beginning, it's it seems like it's often kind of a question mark where those opportunities may come from. But now that there's such significant traction and really just information about really both sides of what you guys are doing on borrowers and lenders. I'm just curious, what has, what else has got you excited about going into work each day as you look down the next six months or 12 months? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what we're really excited about is the spectrum of opportunities that we're going to provide on our platform. So by that, I mean, the different borrower types I mentioned where we're working with so many different industries. I think we recently announced that we provided the credit score for an olive oil trading company and a physical oil trading company and an insurance firm. And yeah, so like there's just lots and lots of interesting credit methodologies being worked on that I think what we're proving out is that we're able to unlock a lot more data on these borrowers to get them access to capital that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So that I think is really exciting. And I think in the landscape of what we're or in the current lending landscape where people are quite risk averse, giving them the broad spectrum of all the way from like collateralized lending to secured uncollateralized lending to unsecured uncollateralized lending is what our platform is able to do is it can essentially offer them that spectrum of opportunities where all of those have monitoring and credit scoring available on them. And then I think finally, what we realize is that as we enter a, the phase of this market where regulation is important. We've launched a platform that has 
licenses such that you know when a borrower and lender come to our platform we give them the opportunity to you know access data from all of these different borrowers and connect to all these different lenders but there is kind of this painful onboarding process where by the time you go through it back and forth with compliance the lending opportunity might have gone and so what we've done is we've gotten licenses such that you can just if you want to just face us in between say you can face our license intermediary and we will work in an agency capacity and essentially facilitate the loan to the other side so really just unlocks efficiencies from an operational perspective for lenders and borrowers on the platform and provides more institutional rails into the DeFi partners that we work with. So we work with a lot of DeFi credit applications where we provide scores to and our borrowers borrow from. So in those instances where institutions need to lend into those protocols but can't face them directly because they have fiat or they don't want to manage a wallet, for example, we can act as this license intermediary and provide capital into those particular protocols. So yeah, I'm excited about essentially using all of this data, unlocking all of this data for a variety of different borrower types, but also making it more seamless to be able to tap into that credit. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So maybe taking a step back here, you know, kind of a recurring segment or a question on the show has kind of become this question, which is if I were to ask, you know, the future of crypto is blank. How would you about kind of just the broader space sort of fill in the blank about what the future of crypto or Web3 kind of looks like? It's a great question. I, I think for me, the future of crypto is disintermediation. And really what I mean by that is where I come from in traditional markets and where what inspired me about the power of crypto is essentially the ability to cut out a middleman and using the potential of programmable money and programmable smart contracts and all of the underlying technologies of crypto, you can disintermediate certain functions. And I think in many cases, the focus has been on other things when we've had recent waves and bubbles, shall we say, within crypto. But really, truly the ethos of what crypto is trying to do is disintermediate someone that is inserting themselves when they don't need to be. And that's what I see the future of finance leaning on is essentially disintermediated channels, whether it's for settlement, whether it's for financing, whether it's for like what we're doing, which is credit evaluation. I see crypto being used for disintermediating certain functions. And I guess the common theme has been always to talk about decentralization as the only way to achieve that dis disintermediation. And I just think it's broader than that. Like cryptography is able to do that with or without decentralization. And so I think that that's what really excites me about the space. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of paradigm shift away from decentralization for decentralization's sake, which I think does kind of speak to a lot of, you know, especially on the on this show in particular, a lot of people come on and their, you know, general advice is make sure you really need to to be in this space, like make sure blockchain technology is actually relevant to what you're trying to do. And I think that's actually kind of akin to a little bit of what you're saying, kind of from a different yeah. direction, but that's really interesting. So maybe if we were to bracket, you know, predictions, this is actually kind of something I wanted to start maybe asking on this show. So, you know, caveat emptor, any predictions for this upcoming year, 
you know, really broad question could be, you know, obviously regulation in the U.S. is a big point of conversation. I mean, all kinds of things that you could have predictions about. Is there anything that you're that's kind of front of mind for you that you think is going to happen for, you know, next 12 months, say, that might be an interesting thing to look back on in, in a year from now? Yeah, I think what really excites me at the moment about crypto is that a lot of people have written it off. And I think that's usually a really good thing for, I mean, not for fundraising, but for everything, anyone that's building in the space, it's kind of usually a time where a lot of really cool things happen. For me, I think that we're quietly seeing a lot of businesses or protocols in the space that are working on real yield products where the yield is not so much based on speculative, I guess, risky constructs or Ponzi-like structures, but based more on real assets. And I see that part of the, the space growing more significantly. I think the credit sector is obviously something that I'm biased towards, but it's so small relative to the size of the industry that I'm really, I guess, very bullish about because of how small it is relative to the size of the rest of the industry. And I think that part of the challenge lies in data, but also the other parts of the problems lie in, you know, compliant rails, getting institutions comfortable with all of the different channels that are involved in, in, in credit. And I think outside of that, I touched on the regulatory landscape. I think that let's say over a 12 month period from now, I see more certainty coming about regulatory about the regulatory climate in the space. And so, yeah, it might not all be good news, but it gives people definitive direction. So that might be that we all leave the US as a place for crypto, or it might be that we have like real structures that we can embed in it within the US or really anywhere to run a proper crypto business. But I think that the phase we're in right now is obviously, I guess, a quiet period where you can really build a lot of interesting solutions and build real products that can gain traction when people start to gain interest again in crypto. Love it. Okay, Darshan, maybe two last questions here. First question would be, what would be your most generalizable advice for founders building in crypto right now? Maybe, you know, and maybe one of two directions. Maybe it could be, you know, founders who are thinking about jumping in right now during sort of this peculiar time, or, you know, I'm always interested in what advice would you give yourself if you could kind of impart some wisdom from your journey thus far, back when you were first starting, what would you want to say to yourself? Either one of those works. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, annoyingly, like I did get told this by some of my closest friends in crypto, but it's really hard advice to listen to. So I'm sure if he, if he were listening, he'd be throwing stuff at the monitor. But like he, the advice I get, or that I would give, that I got but didn't listen to always, is build what your clients or what your target client wants. And I know that sounds really like obvious, but it's so easy to get wrapped up in your own dream of what you want to build that you sometimes forget like who you're building it for and you're just building what you want to build because it is it seems cool. But you kind of move away from like what the client actually wants. And and you know, after a while you stop going to ask them for what they want because you just want to build the thing you want to build but it's once you've embedded yourself or like entrenched yourself into that view it's then annoying to go and get feedback that's contradictory you just want validation 
And I think that's when you get stuck, right? You can get stuck building something that you thought was the right thing to build. And you weren't really getting that validated from anywhere. And that's kind of like a very difficult thing to do because there are times when you have to build something, even though no one really agrees with you, but someone might agree with your thesis. And so it's worth building, even though you don't see fruits straight away. So I think like for me, there's like, there's two very opposite reactions and it's important to know when you're in which lane. The first is, you know, essentially validate what you're building and make sure that is what your clients want. And essentially, if your clients tell you that actually that's not what I want, potentially retreat strategically from that and focus on what you should be focused on. Or it is persist, even though no one else sees that particular vision. And those two things are like almost polar opposite, but there is like a nuanced reason to pick one over the other. And so I guess like as a founder, you've got to make those tough calls about when it's time to persist and when it's time to, to listen to your clients. I mean, I think you should always listen to your clients, but it's more about whether your vision is such that your vision is being validated, but the product traction isn't necessarily going the way you want. So I feel like as a founder, it's your job to know which mode you're in, whether you're in the mode of essentially retreating from something you shouldn't be doing and build the thing that your client wants, or whether you should be persisting because the vision is still on track. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, Darshan, what are you guys working on right now? And what is the best way for people to follow along on the journey? Yeah, so I mean, we're, as I said earlier, it's a credit intelligence platform. So we're helping borrowers and lenders of all types connect with each other, share unique data with each other in this privacy preserving way. The best way to reach out is either through our socials like LinkedIn, Twitter, you can reach out to us on our website. And yeah, we've also launched this aggregated marketplace called Instant Lend, which aggregates all the different yield opportunities across DeFi and CFI that we provide scoring for and provide compliant and licensed rails too. So we'd love your feedback on that. If you're an institutional lender or an institutional borrower, we'd love to talk to you and learn more about what you're, what you need. Perfect. Thank you so much for the time. This was really interesting and I'm thrilled to follow along in the journey myself. So have a great rest of your week here and take care. Thanks, Tana. Appreciate your time. All right. Bye-bye.